Turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you'll experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture, dive into the new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Eric Reinhold, welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, I can't wait for this conversation when I mean, you and I have been friends forever, we went to school together at Roger Williams University. We did. Yeah. You know, so you and I have known each other a long time, have followed one another's journey, has worked together and collaborated with one another. And I'm excited. You've been on the show several times, actually four times back in 2015. We did the field guide series, you know, episode 84, 89, 97, and 99 go back and they're still relevant. You should go listen to them, but you haven't been on since then. And, you know, you and I have updated one another and connected, but we haven't sort of come on the show and given people an update. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, where you are today, but what I'd love to do is maybe document or maybe talk about your journey as an architect, your practice, specifically 30 by 40 workshop, how it started, you know, what were the different phases you went through and where you are today, and maybe even, you know, talk a little bit about what your plans are for the future but let's focus on 30 by 40 design workshop and share that story. Good idea? Yeah, that sounds great, Mark. Yeah. Well, let me introduce you for anybody who may not know who Eric is. Eric's a licensed architect based in Maine, the mid-coast island town of Mount Desert Island. You may know Eric as the creator of the 30 by 40 design workshop. It's a YouTube channel where since 2013, he's been making videos about architecture designs for simple modern homes, and he openly shares his process there. Today, the videos are used as curriculum in architecture schools and by students and professionals throughout the world. I highly recommend that after you finish listening to this episode, you should go and subscribe to the 30 by 40 YouTube channel. You can just search it 30 by 40, you'll find it. I will also have a link on the show notes. Eric is the co-founder and the co-host of Two Sides of Phi as well where Eric and his longtime friend, Jason, they share their journeys to retiring early and achieving financial independence. Totally, it's not an architecture podcast. It's about the five movement and their process of retiring early or their journeys to retire early and, and achieve financial independence. It's a fantastic podcast. I love the conversations that he and Jason have. So you should go check that out. It's also on YouTube. So you can go check it out on YouTube as well. Yeah. And so that's sort of where Eric has been, who he is, what he's been doing. He's been here before. Go check out those episodes. Let's do this, Eric. Let's talk about 30 by 40 Design Workshop. Give us an origin story first. Let's go back before the firm, before you actually decided to you know, become an architect even. Go back to when you discovered your passion for architecture and share that story to where we are today. And then I want to jump into your firm. Okay. You know, I started off like probably a lot of other architects you and I both know, playing with Legos, you know, building model trains. And I always say that when I was a kid mowing lawns, I would take my lawn mowing money and go down to the local bookstore and buy plan books. And then I would bring them back home and take tracing paper over the top of them and redesign all the plans. So, you know, I knew very early on that I had a strong interest in drawing and the intersection of, you know, engineering and drawing and art was an interesting space for me to play in as a kid. And I think it was an obvious choice for me to become an architect. You know, I took drafting classes in high school and I had a very kind of Mike Brady 
idea of what an architect did. And so for anybody who doesn't know, The Brady Bunch was a show that was on in the 70s when I was growing up watching TV. And the father was an architect. He was a residential architect. And so that was the picture that I had in my mind of what being an architect was, certainly. And Is that where you learned what an architect was from Mike Brady? Or did you sort of know earlier than that? Do you remember when you discovered architecture and what inspired you? I don't remember actually even knowing a local architect in my town. I just remember seeing the plan books in the bookstore because my parents would take us down after church on Sundays to the bookstore and dad would get the New York Times and I would just go into the room that held the plan books and everything. And I just loved floor plans and elevations. And so, you know, I had a natural affinity for that kind of thing. But, I, you know, I never had any example architects other than Mike Brady to look up to and say, you know, that's what I want to do. Were your parents creative? Was it just innate that you wanted to go into that back room to find those plan books? Or was there something that sort of got you to that level of creativity where that was the thing that got you excited? You know, my mother was always, she was a calligrapher. She was an artist. There you go. She (laughs) was doing medical illustrations for a time. And my father was a museum curator. And so, you know, he would create these kind of video presentations. And so, you know, I would swing between those two kind of workshops of my parents. So maybe Mm -hmm. those influences are stronger than I'm giving credit for. Yeah, I bet you they are. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Craft projects going on, you know, making things. And so I think architecture for me just became a natural kind of extension of my love for building models and working with my hands and drawing. And it seemed like the thing I was most suited to do after high school, you know, college was a a natural progression for people in our generation. Certainly we were talking about this before the show and what our kids are considering doing, but yeah, I went to school at Roger Williams university, which is in Rhode Island. I chose the school based on the studio. I love the studio space. Yeah, me too. That's what made me go there as well. The building. Yeah. It's right on the ocean. I mean, you know, it's a hard place not to love, but I think I went into architecture school with a pretty naive idea of what architects did, obviously. And when I got there, I just discovered that there was this whole depth to the curriculum that I just had no idea about, you know, history and theory and tectonics. And, you know, there was, of course, all the drawing and the model building that I expected, but it was different than what I anticipated. And of course, when you graduate from school and I started my internship, there's another shift, another, you know, surprise as you get right. into the field and you realize how little you know. You think you're you're a hotshot designer coming out of school, and then you step into the field and day one, you know, the contractor's telling you what you don't know. And you start to realize that over time. I went to after school, I ended up working for a number of different firms, and we were mostly doing large-scale projects, commercial educational, institutional work, which I didn't have a real strong love of. My wife took a postdoctoral fellowship where we live now on this tiny island off the coast of Maine. It's a pretty unique place, but there's a world-renowned genetics lab here. And she took a postdoctoral fellowship there. And I went to work for a residential architect, which was kind of my dream. I had always wanted to design kind of high-end homes, you know, the kind of Mike Brady coming full circle. Designing homes was what I always wanted to do. And, you know, I started working for this award-winning firm and I loved it. I mean, I just fell in love with working with clients one-on-one, working with, you know, builders and craftspeople. And just, it was an amazing indoctrination into that love that I had of architecture from when I went into school. And I knew that this was a great place to do that. This is a place where people build second and third and fourth homes and they have budgets to do that. And I felt pretty lucky to practice with them. There was a recession in 2008 that kind of ground to a a bottom point in 2012. And the firm I was working for, they had to make some, you know, pay changes. And that was the point at which I decided I was going to set out on my own and really, you know, kind of take control over my own professional destiny. And that's when I started 30 by 40 Design Workshop. So 2013 is when I started there. And, you know, it's 10 years old this year. So yeah, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I think it's easy to connect the dots looking back, yes. but I certainly couldn't have planned it this way. And I know you and I are going to talk about the the kind of different phases of the business, but yeah, that's kind of my summary. Yeah. And that's why I want to talk about this is the 10 years, right? So started it from scratch. You know, you started the YouTube channel at the same time, around the same time, a little bit after yeah. launching the firm. And you've documented a lot there. And so you can go back to all of the videos. They're all relevant, right? They're all sort of documenting your journey. But I would love to sort of talk about that. Let's jump into 
30 by 40 coming out of the recession. Did you say you lost your job or do you left the job? I made a very conscious decision. I mean, this is the launching point for anybody's firm. I held this idea of wanting to start my own business, like this little trophy. You know, I would used to kind of trot it out at family gatherings, like, yeah, I'm going to start my business at some point. And I used the kind of pay cut. So the firm basically said 20% pay cut for everyone. You can either take that one day a week that we're not going to pay you for and invest it back into our business, or you can seek work out on your own and, you know, try and build up your own stable projects to make up for that income. And I basically said, like, this is my chance. Yeah. It's now or never. Because I was feeling like the paycheck from that business was going to be, you know, it was a sure thing. But in that moment, I realized it's not a sure thing. It's I need to take control of this. And so I think for a lot of people, keeping the dream is something precious. But I made that choice to step out on the risk spectrum and start the business. And, you know, early days, if I think back to these kind of different phases of the business, the earliest phase for me was all about saying yes. And that just means, you know, when you're first getting started, every project that came along, I was saying yes to. It didn't matter what it was. It was, you know, renovation two hours away. It was a developer project in town, mixed use, whatever. And I think, you know, a lot of people hear this advice that you have to say no. And that's pretty common in kind of entrepreneurial circles, you know, be very careful and choosy with what you say yes to. But I liken this to kind of like scratching lotto tickets, you know, in the early phase of the business, you don't know which ones are going to be the winners. So you got to plant a lot of seeds. You got to do a lot of watering, cultivating and weeding. And then, and really, you know, say yes to all of these things because the couple of things that I said yes to, I realized I really didn't want to do those things. And what I found in this kind of early phase was I was professionally trying to emulate the other businesses that I had worked in. So I just left the firm and I was like, oh, I'm just going to make that, you know? And what I realized was those things weren't really necessarily making me happy. You know, designing a business in someone else's sort of style or, you know, what they chose to do, trading time for dollars, like wasn't great for me professionally. And I think there are different dimensions to each one of these phases. You know, if I think financially, if I think about what it meant, you know, to operate my own business, I was very afraid I would not be able to put food on the table, you know? So I was running lean startup principles right from the beginning. Everything was a MVP. Everything was a minimum viable product. I wasn't spending money where I didn't have to. I was reusing laptops. I was scrounging for paper. You know, if I had to get something plotted, I'd send it out. And all of these lean startup principles, I think are great for early days of the business. But you'll see as we kind of get through these other phases, if you carry those things forward, they don't always serve you well. I was working hard to kind of build a runway. You know, every client check that came in, I was fortunate enough that my wife was working and she was able to support the family through those kind of, you know, bumpy times. There's a lot of lumpy income coming in as a small business owner, but I worked hard to build a runway so that I wouldn't have to go back to working for somebody else. So the financial dimension is precarious in those early days. And then if I think about the kind of personal dimension, it's like you have all this excitement, and the energy, and I'm a very driven person. I was excited to kind of play business, if you will. But it also came with working a lot of long hours and some personal friction in the family because I'm so focused on building this business and I'm choosing to neglect other relationships. And so, you know, I think it would be false narrative for me to say, like, it's all been... (laughs) Rosie from the beginning, because as I was talking to my wife about this, the early phases of the design, when the business turned 10, you know, talking about these early phases of business, she's like, don't forget what it was like, you know, you were working in the corner of our living room. And every time, you know, you'd take the night off and sit on the couch to have dinner or whatever, you'd be staring at that drafting table in the corner. And it's like this thing that's always looming there. And it does cause a little bit of friction in your relationship. So something to pay attention to for those who are earlier in business. And you're so focused and so determined to make it work that you basically do sacrifice so much to make that happen. And so that's good advice. And you just assign so much of your personal worth to the success of the business. And it's hard not to do, I have to say. And it's hard to to remove that idea from the success too. At least it was for me personally. Like I'm putting all I have into this. And if it's not successful, it means I'm a failure. And you know, I think as the business grew, I learned to disconnect those things, but it's still 
it's a challenge for early stage. Yes. And it's all through every phase, right? It's always there, that identity, that link between you as a person and the firm and its success are so linked when you're an entrepreneur. For sure. All the way through, even today, that if you're so determined that it's going to continue to succeed and continue to grow into what you hope it might become in the future. When you first started, I have two questions. Where did those early projects that you said yes to, right? You're in this island. Where did those projects come from? How did they come to you? And well, let's start with that. And then I'll ask the second question. I do a lot of coaching with people who are just starting their businesses. And this is where everyone struggles. Like, well, how am I going to get that first project? I don't know if this is true universally, but it's been my experience. And it was my own personal experience that they came from referrals. So builders that I knew Mm -hmm. and developers that I knew or a previous client. So, and if you're looking at someone's business, who's 10 years old and they're spending money on ads and their marketing, and they've got a website and videos and all those things, like that's a long game, that marketing game, you will never stop marketing your business. But when you're first getting started, the marketing effort takes so much work. It's like this big flywheel. You're just continuing to add and add content and create new things and try and create value for people. But those early projects, that's a long game. Those early projects, they're going to come from word of mouth, you know, referrals, reaching out to people in your network. You know, if you know other architects, people who are turning away work, that's what I always tell people like, you know, I'm turning away many projects every week. And, you know, if I had someone to send them to, that's an immediate and obvious pipeline. So referrals. Yeah. Yeah. When we started Five Cat Studio, that too was the thing that helped us get launched is we had a lot of good relationships we didn't burn any bridges yeah. along the way, right? So uh, lots of experienced architects were passing work along to us. Lots of contractors from previous jobs. You know, we made the world know that we had our own firm and that we were looking for work. And so it came from everywhere. Yeah. When you first started, did you put together a plan, whether it was in your head on where you wanted to go or or even a written plan to get started? I had what I call a brand plan and I put this in my book because I really don't believe in business plans. I, from a very young age, and this is something I didn't mention in the origin story, but you know, from the very young age, I was always interested in this idea of a holistic kind of business. So, you know, I would set up like stores in my bedroom as a kid where I would design the graphics on the the entry door. I would do the accounting. I would have invoice slips. You know, I would set up all the displays. And for me, Creating this business was a chance for me to create this holistic brand. And I knew it wasn't going to happen overnight, but I was so interested in designing the letterhead and doing the graphics and thinking about what, you know, a brand statement might be. So rather than coming up with a business plan, which, you know, when I look at people's business plans, I I sort of think they're immediately irrelevant. I mean, it may be a kind of course setting direction for a business early on. But to me, it's kind of irrelevant the moment that you hit print on it. So I really tried to think about what do I want this business to be? And as I said, in phase one, the business was just going to be like high-end architectural design services. And I didn't have any sort of grand vision beyond that. So I'd I I mean the thing about building a brand is you know you don't actually get to say what it is you can sort of shape it and mold it yep. and create content and try and make it look like you want but you know it's actually the people who are consuming your brand and people coming to you who get the final say they get to say you know when I think of 30 by 40 this is what I think of like when I ask you that question you probably have something that comes to mind that you think of and it's right. it's all in your head I can try and control it, but building a brand to me seemed like a bigger project that I could then kind of lean into and design long-term rather than a business plan. So the brand was there from the very beginning. The idea of what you wanted to create was there from day one. It was, yeah. And it obviously evolved over time, but I was always interested in that. And I was always following people like Tim Ferriss and Gary Vaynerchuk, who, you know, had very strong ideas about branding. And obviously, you know, I'm really interested in the some of the superficial aspects of branding, packaging and graphic design. That was always kind of an interest of mine as well. So, you know, that helps too. It's something that over time I've just tried to insert more and more into you know, my design practice, like I'm interested in designing the graphics on the title block. Like I'm, that's an interest of mine. And all of these little pieces kind of contribute to the brand 
but yeah, it's a fun design exercise for me. 30 by 40 design workshop YouTube channel starts in spring of 2013. Was that part of that original brand plan or was that a result of starting? Yeah, that was my attempt to not only kind of try and monetize the business because I knew you could earn ad revenue. I went into starting a YouTube channel thinking, oh, I'm going to make mad money. You know, I'll build up a big YouTube channel and I'll make mad money on the advertising revenue on the back end. So, and I had some early proof of concept with that. You know, I think I wrote in my book, you know, I made nine cents on a video from advertising. The first time I made that, I brought it to my wife and I said, proof of concept. This is, <laughs> this is possible. I mean, it's so silly to look back on that, but really that was part of a whole suite of experiments. You know, I was writing for House. I was writing blog articles. I was publishing content based on the articles I was writing. I was trying a whole bunch of different things, Mark. And I was designing plan sets and I was making, I was even making furniture in my basement to try and sell on Etsy. It's that idea of kind of throwing out all these seeds and then seeing which ones kind of germinate. And then you know, I realized pretty quickly making furniture, I mean, if someone places an order for furniture, it's me spending my time to go in the basement and make the furniture and then, or cards, you know, I did a bunch of this with cards, I'd ship the things out and they would get damaged in the mail. And then it's this whole customer service thing. And I did, I was doing it for, you know, effectively a penny an hour or something, something ridiculous, you know, and, <laughs> but it's part of this kind of ethos of experimentation, I think that I was building that I wasn't afraid to try new things. And in part, that early phase of the business is like, well, I'm kind of desperate to earn some income. So what are all the ways I could do this? You know, and I was following Tim Ferriss and Pat Flynn and probably all the same people you were. I was listening to your podcast, you know, it's like entrepreneurship started becoming really appealing to me because, you know, entrepreneurship is kind of this different sort of lens to look at business through, you know, you're looking for streams of income and revenue, and then trying to build a set of scalable processes around that, you know, and I can't pretend that I had like this light bulb moment, like, oh, this is what the business is going to be next. But I was slowly moving from phase one into phase two, which is like entrepreneurship is really a way for me to preserve all the things that I love about practice. I love designing homes for people. I love that personal engagement. But what I can't do is work with five different clients at the same time. Like if I want to have a sole proprietorship and just self-direct here without a big team of people, I can't have this many projects in my orbit because it's just driving me crazy and it's making my personal relationships terrible and financially it's fine, but I can't see a way of getting beyond where I'm at without raising my rates. So phase one is about saying yes and experimenting is what I'm hearing you say, yeah. right? It's, it's about trying all these different things. I have all these interests. I have all these ways of making money, all these different ways as an architect to, to be successful. Let's try everything I'm interested in and see what works, right? So it's it's almost like a laboratory, like phase one is the lab. You're out there trying everything, seeing what works, saying yes to every opportunity that comes in. And then at some point, you're doing that for several years, you realize, all oh, right, this isn't sustainable forever, right? And there are some things that I really like to do, but there are some other things that I'm making money doing, right? And so you start putting the pieces together, right? The puzzle starts coming together. So for you, how long did phase one last? And when did you realize that you were moving from phase one to phase two? And I know that we're all <laughs> connecting dots backwards, right? There wasn't right. like, oh, we're moving into phase two. We're looking at this looking backwards. But there was a moment in your story where you realized, I need to make some changes and make some decisions, which is that transition. How long did it take you to get to that point? Yeah, it's all a little bit fuzzy. But if I had to put numbers to it, I would say the first kind of two to three years mm -hmm. were really those phase of experimentation. You know, I've got a bunch of projects that are getting built and, you know, you won't see in my portfolio <laughs> those projects from those early years because right. it's kind of putting food on the table, you know, and it's, they're not glamorous projects. And, you know, that was very intentional of me because as part of building the brand, you know, I don't want more of those projects. So I'm not going to put those projects into my portfolio. So a couple of years, right? Two to three years. And I did have this kind of, as I said, when I was really thinking hard about how to scale my time. And I had a couple of projects where I was just had a really miserable client experience. And I thought there's kind of this budget zone. There's a zone of client and budget here that they're pretty demanding and they're 
difficult to work with. And I understand those things because I think I was one of those clients when I was building my house. It's like I got a limited budget and everything is a constraint. And I just started to realize that I wasn't the best person to help those kind of clients. And so as I started looking at this critically, I got a really great project that kind of came into the studio. And it was a result of one of the projects that I had done previously and a referral. And I looked at that project as kind of like, this is where I'm going to, I'm going to use this project as the kind of the crucible for this business concept here. And I'm going to start making content about this project and I'm going to really turn on the entrepreneurship kind of knob. You know, I'm going to figure out how to take the work that I'm doing as an architect and then repurpose it in all these different ways. And so, you know, that was right around 2016. If I look at when that project came in and as I started working through this model, I realized I could no longer, you know, meet in my house. You know, I was having people in my dining room table. We'd have a client meeting and I have this cat. It's my wife's cat, by the way. And the cat at one of these meetings climbs between the slip cover and the back of the sofa. And it's like clawing its way up the back of the couch, like wedging himself in there. And I was trying to figure out how to extricate this cat from the couch, all the while conducting this meeting, you know, for this new client that I was courting. And I was like, this has to end. And so I didn't get that project. But as part of that, it kind of forced me to say, you might need a dedicated space for this. You know, I was finally comfortable personally that I could make the finances work. I knew that, yeah, it's a little lumpy here and there, but I was starting to feel more confident that I could put food on the table for us reliably. And so then I started thinking, you know, how can I self-publish all the work that I'm doing, including like making a studio for myself. So, you know, the studio was finished at the end of 2016, early 2017. And I started turning that into content that I could put on the YouTube channel. And I was working with this other client who was a great client. They were doing an amazing project. We had a great site. It was like all very photogenic. And, you know, so the opportunities here, they presented themselves because I put myself in a certain position and started thinking really kind of more calculating about how I could start taking these byproducts of the design process and start running a new set of experiments. And the new set of experiments were really thinking about how can I scale revenues here? You know, how can I take that source, turn into a bunch of resources and in the process, cut out all the other sort of smaller projects along the way, because it's the small projects, you know, like if I'm doing a home renovation, that's a half a million dollars, it's still a kitchen and bathrooms and, you know, maybe site work and all these things. And, you know, if I stack up a bunch of those, not only is the timeline shorter, the budget's smaller, the fees smaller, it's more of a headache. And I thought if I can just cut out all of those and really focus on the larger projects where the fee is larger, the schedule is longer. I don't have to find as many of them. And if I can take everything that I'm doing there and turn it into something else, that was a light bulb moment for me. I was like, oh, I can do this. And the finishing building the studio, that was proof of concept. Like this business model can work. And 2017 is when I made that short film, A Choice to Make, which I think of as being a turning point in my YouTube channel. That's when things really started to grow. And I stopped making what I consider to be garbage content and started really thinking about filmmaking and investing in those resources. And then other doors opened, you know? So it's like this, it's a strange evolution looking back, but yeah, it feels obvious, but it was incremental. Yes. Very incremental, intentional right? And you made some intentional decisions. And I would say, listening to your phase two description, it's about choices. You're still experimenting, right? But now you're making choices, right? I'm not going to do that kind of work anymore. I'm going to work on this kind of work, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is part of the brand. This resonates with me personally. This is more profitable. This is less time involved, right? The time commitment. So you're making those choices. You're also at that point, you know, three, four years in, you're gaining traction. Right. And so you're starting to see some of these things working and recognizing, oh, maybe there's other ways to leverage that traction, right? That you start building the studio, you start writing books. When you, you and I did the field guide series, that was about branding and about book publishing, right? You had just published your book. And so we, we had a lots of, of interest in architects asking, how do I publish a book? So we came on and we shared how you published your book. And so that's all part of that transition that was right around from phase one to phase two, where you were starting to make those decisions, writing books, investing in the YouTube channel, repurposing the content so that content can become part of your brand, 
in a low effort way, right? All of this stuff is also being done by you as a sole practitioner, right? So that's something that people have to remember as well, that you also made a conscious decision to not build a big firm, right? That was part of the brand. It was part of your personal decision, right? That had to be intentional. It was, yeah. I mean, it was also, I started seeing business as this design problem that I could solve. I loved that aspect. Like professionally, I didn't have to copy someone else's business. I could make this thing whatever I wanted to. And that was very, that was empowering. But I also, when you say, you know, it was just me, I think this is probably the point in a lot of people's sort of business progression where they say, well, I, I'm going to hire out some help. I need some drafting help or I need, you know, if you think about the org chart of any business and you're the CEO at the top, you start hiring furthest away from you is generally what they say. You know, you hire the sort of mm -hmm. the tasks which are time consuming, but you may not be best suited for it. Yeah, I made a decision not to do it. I think that's maybe a weakness of how I chose to scale here because I could have really poured gas on the fire and, you know, gotten to where I'm at today a lot faster had I been a little more savvy about that. You know, financially, I was I was still building a runway. I was still very spendthrifty. I was still kind of MVPing everything. And that's one of those things I think you start to carry through some of these mentalities, these startup mentalities through to a more mature business. Not that, you know, a business six years old is that mature, but it's more mature than than I was in year one. But I was still acting in some ways like I was in year one, like, okay, I got to have a runway. I don't want to go back to working for somebody else. And it's kind of this like scarcity mentality. Yeah. But that also allowed you to do what you did, right? That if you had to take your brain power and your resources and focus that on building a firm mm -hmm. that had people in it and managers in it and multiple projects with multiple people and multiple clients, you would not have had the time and time and capacity to start building the YouTube channel and writing the books and publishing the books and building the brand that you had in your mind. And so there was a conscious decision that this is what you wanted to do. And therefore you had to sacrifice that other option, right? It wasn't necessarily a mistake from my point of view. It was a choice, right? That you decided to build this new thing, which really is, it was a unique model, right? Nobody really had done that before. Build an architecture firm, documented on YouTube, you're a pioneer in, in this social media documentation of building an architecture firm from scratch, right? No one did that before. And so you chose this experiment, which isn't surprising looking back, that you chose the experimental route. Let's build this thing and see how this works. I love this idea, this brand. Or I could build this traditional firm, right? Leverage what I've built to this point and build a traditional firm. You chose the entrepreneurial route and to build this thing that no one's built before. Yeah. I remember feeling conflicted about not having this big portfolio of work. You know, when you first start out, you're like, oh, I need a portfolio to send people to. And there's obvious needs there. But as I got to the kind of middle phase of the business, I was starting to question that. I was like, well, if I'm going to choose larger projects that take a year or two to build, you know, which they kind of do around here, mm -hmm. you know, over a 25 year career, maybe that's 50 homes. Okay. And that's not a lot of people. When I started making videos on the YouTube channel and people started like enjoying, some of the things that I was making, I started to sense that I could publish a video and get, say, you know, a million views on a video teaching people how to draw better. Mm -hmm. That was so gratifying to me. I It was completely unexpected. And it wasn't like this grand plan from the beginning. The grand plan was, hey, I'm going to earn a little extra money. But mm -hmm. the thing that I uncovered in this phase of the business was there's a lot of satisfaction that I get out of helping other people and helping a mass of people. Like the people that I couldn't serve from a client perspective that had a lower budget, you know, that I wasn't best suited to serve. I could now serve them by showing them like an ideal process, like working with this one client, you know, we're designing a lighting plan. I can show you what that's like and how to choose lights and what that process might be like. And some people who are looking at that video and saying, I could never do that. I should hire an architect that sends them to an architect. Maybe it's me, maybe it's exactly or the person that's looking at that saying I could DIY this. They say, oh yeah, all I need to do is, you know, these five things and I can make a better lighting plan. So to me, that was a great kind of side benefit of this that was unexpected. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Accurate data is crucial, especially in today's business environment. Outdated and inaccurate data leads to turnarounds, delays, and rising costs. 
With supply chain and staffing issues, these costs and delays can multiply. That's why a resource like RCAT.com is so important. RCAT works with manufacturers to keep their data up to date and accurate and offers it to you easily accessible and free. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find what you need fast and download it right there on their site without needing to pay for anything. It's free. You don't even have to register. So go try RCAT.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. Unlock your full potential as an architect business owner at Entree Architect Network. Since 2013, Entree Architect has been the premier membership community designed exclusively for small firm entrepreneur architects like you. Join a vibrant community of like-minded professionals and gain access to a wealth of resources, mentorship, and support. From comprehensive courses to expert guidance, Entree Architect Network equips you with the necessary tools to thrive in your career. Master business strategies, enhance your marketing techniques, and excel in project management, all while fulfilling your continuing education requirements along the way. Break free from the isolation and connect with a supportive network that understands the unique challenges that you face as an architect business owner. Whether you're a startup architect or a seasoned professional looking to make a difference, join us and we will help you elevate your career, boost your confidence, and unlock opportunities for your architecture firm. When our community of entrepreneur architects is linked and leveraged as one, there's no limit to the impact that we can have on the world. Visit EntreeArchitect.com today and become part of our thriving network. Unleash the full potential of your architecture business. Join Entree Architect Network today the premier global business organization for small firm architects. Learn more at entrearchitect.com. So what year did you do the short film? That was 2017. So that was, I hired my architectural photographer and I looked at that as an investment. I kind of felt like the YouTube channel had run its course at that point. I was like, eh, I'm not really making content that I'm very proud of. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to document and put a capstone on building the studio. And so I said, rather than just do like a half day photo shoot, why don't we turn this into like a short film? And I saw this architectural and design film festival. And I said, Hey, there's a deadline. We can create the film, submit it in November or whenever it was. And, you know, let's just make a little kind of fun design project out of it. So it ended up getting selected for that film festival and took my whole family down there to screen. It was like a super proud moment. And <laughs> I can't remember if I've told the story here, Mark, or not, but we were sitting in the theater with my whole family and they played my film first. And I was so proud of it. You know, family's all proud of it. And then they put the second film on that they were screening. And I was like, oh, this is way better. <laughs> and then the third one came on. I was like, oh God. And I just, I kind of, you know, shrunk in my seat because I was, oh. it just makes you realize like, you make something and it can always be better. And I think that's the story of this business. Like I'm always looking for ways to improve and get better. And that film itself made me a much better filmmaker and a storyteller because we actually had to create a story there. And I feel like it changed the trajectory of my YouTube channel. And today it's much more based on storytelling because of that pivot I made in 2017. Yeah. And you could see it in the content, right? That it was really good content before that, but you saw a commitment shift, yeah. right? You went all in with that film. And from that point forward, you're like, I'm not going to publish weekly or whatever you were publishing earlier, right? You're only going to publish high quality video content. And if it takes me a month to create that, then I'm not going to publish for a month because whatever's going on that channel is going to be high quality. And you saw that shift as somebody who, who followed you on YouTube. And you also saw the views go through the roof when you start pre creating that content. That was, you know, high quality cinematic video. Yeah. And it felt personally really gratifying to be able to do that. That felt like another vocation that I just invented for myself. And I, it was a great blueprint for the business moving forward because, you know, it opened up the world of photography to me. And, you know, the, obviously the more views you get on something, the more it's going to earn and you get more traction and you can help more people. And it's the great thing about social media. When you get it right, it does all the work for you. And, you know, those marketing efforts in the early days, I couldn't have created those 
short films that you know I was making in 2018, 2020, and today, I couldn't have made those when I first opened the business. It's that right. Ira Glass. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard Ira Glass talk about this, but you know your tastes when you're first getting started making things, your tastes far exceed your ability to create those things, and so you know inherently that what you're making is just like it's not that good. It's not as good as you know it should be or can be, and I don't know that I'll ever feel content with the way I want it to be or know it could be, but it's gotten much closer. You know, the resolution of that conflict has become much closer. And you have to go through the work and the commitment and the dedication (laughs) in order to get there, right? Even knowing that it's not as good as it could be, you have to go through that process to get to the point where it is as good as you want it to be. And maybe it'll never get there, but it'll always continue to improve if you commit and keep going. This is called the practice of architecture, right? Right. And I love that because there's a discipline to this. And that short film, I called it a choice to make, which is kind of a double meaning because I was making a choice to step out on my own, but also I chose to make things. And that practice and discipline of making things is the only thing that got me to where the business is today. Yeah. So phase two was about experimentation, but making choices, right? making choices and gaining traction, recognizing the traction and making decisions. And so I want to also make clear to the listeners that you don't have to start a YouTube channel, right? To be successful in this model. The model is take everything. Phase one, it's a lab. Do everything that you can. Take everything that's offered to you. Do all these different experiments. See what works. See what doesn't work. Recognizing that lots aren't going to work. And then in phase two, you start making decisions, right? You start gaining traction, seeing what works, making those decisions in order to be more successful. And so whatever that is for you, that's what you should be doing, right? Those decisions should be, if you're good at YouTube, then you should follow YouTube. If you're not good at YouTube and you're good at something else, you should follow those things. So for you, Eric, where does phase three begin and what is phase three? So you're making these decisions, things are starting to work. The short film was a turning point, you said. So YouTube is starting to gain some traction. Clearly, it's starting to make some money too. So that probably is part of your decision-making that you know YouTube and passive income is going to be a big part of the future of 30 by 40. Where does that transition go and what is phase three for you? I think phase two ended around the pandemic and you know the pandemic was multiple years. So yeah, as I think of like phase three, starts in about 2020 or 2021 and, you know, continues to now, although, you know, we can talk about what that means. I think phase two is about leaning into entrepreneurship and really making intentional decisions. As you said, phase three is about saying no, you know, those early days saying yes to everything, you have limited time, you know, and I recognize the things that are going to work for the business. I feel like phase three is product market fit, that old business term where I know the clients I'm best suited to serve. And I have a business model that I know I can work and scale. And, you know, having product market fit allows me to say no to all of the kind of deal flow. You know, if you have a successful business, you're going to have people coming in all the time. They want to get on the waiting list. You know, they want to work with you. With a YouTube channel, you have advertisers coming, brands that are coming, wanting to work with you, people wanting to send you things. And, you know, there's all this kind of attack from all angles. And if you get to this point and you can't say no, you're going to be completely overwhelmed and you're not going to enjoy all of the intentional decisions and the business that you designed that got you here. And so I think this is the point where, you know, that advice of learning how to say no is going to be the most important to people. And, you know, I do a lot of saying no right now. And that clears the decks for me. That creates the white space for me to lean into the things that I'm most excited about and most encouraged to do. And, you know, a lot of that are kind of pet projects. You know, if I can afford to take a project a year and really just work through that at a real fine level of detail and know that I have a waiting list filled with people that I can transition to next. It's like, it's all very comfortable. And I don't know if everyone who's had their business operating for 10 years feels this way, but, you know, I feel like I'm finally at a point where I can spend money to earn money. So, you know, I'm starting to work with a remote team. I've hired a team of people to start helping me. And, you know, people probably got there sooner than I did in my business. You know, this is the first year I've ever hired a 
group of people to help me. And I can see the value in that. You know, I'm starting to invest in the business, you know, for a long time. Phase two, I built this massive runway because I was so afraid to have to go back to work for somebody. And now I recognize how foolish that was, you know? And so I'm using those funds to invest back into the business, you know, advertising. This is a great time to start using advertising dollars. You know, I talked to, like I said, I coached people. I was talking to somebody who's just started their business and they, we were kind of recapping next actions. And they said, yeah, I'd like to start spending some ad dollars. And I'm like, this is the wrong time to spend ad dollars. You need to build up your portfolio of work, build up your content library because you're just going to send ad dollars to an empty website. What's the point? You know, and I feel like that's the hard work is doing all the things in those first two phases. This is where you probably have more money than time and you can start investing back in the business. And it's been great kind of connecting with other people who have been impacted by the work. You know, if I was trading a portfolio of work for one of impact, this is the time when, you know, those things are starting to come back. I get to see success stories, other people who are making content now and having like massive success, like my friend Henry Gao. I don't know if you know him, but he's... I do. I don't know him personally, but I want to. <laughs> yeah, he's. you should have him on the show. I mean, he, I'm going he's an to. entrepreneur at heart. Yeah, he, yes. he's taken my course. He and I have connected. I've done some coaching for him and we have this kind of little mastermind. And it's it's amazing to see those things kind of come to fruition because I don't have that as a portfolio piece to put on my website. But it's so gratifying to see how that ripple effect impacts his family and others going forward, you know, people starting business. I mean, starting this business has been completely life-changing and, and so much more than I ever could have anticipated. And I think that's the thing I couldn't see when I was, you know, first stepping into this in 2013, that all the doors that it would open. You've impacted millions of people through the choices you've made, right? And so, yes, you sacrificed that big portfolio and you said that maybe even that was a regret that you'd never built that big portfolio. But the impact that you've had on the world through millions of people watching what you do and educating them about architects and what architects do is such a service to not only our profession, but the world for them to understand what architects do, right? And you would have never been able to build that if you had that big portfolio. So thank you for making that commitment and doing the work that you do. Yes. Likewise, Mark. I mean, you're doing the same thing. You gave up your practice and you are doing this now and you're educating others and helping professionals. And I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but I can't imagine having this large portfolio of work would ever exceed the feelings that I get from seeing someone else succeed in their own business. Like that is just, it's amazingly inspirational to me. I, I love that. I agree. I call that my fuel. That's what keeps me going. For people to <laughs> to understand how I got to, this is episode 534 of the podcast. Wow. That fuel, the fuel to do that is that gratification, right? That impact that people come back to me and say, thank you, right? Or I made these decisions and now I have this because of something I heard on your podcast, incredibly gratifying and is the fuel for me to keep going. And to make the sacrifices that I needed to make in order to continue doing what I'm doing, because I've made, just like you, have made some very specific conscious decisions that are hard decisions to make. But you have to, in order to do what you're doing, you have to do that. So phase three, as I listen to you talk about phase three, I hear focus and scale, focus and scale, right? You've, you're starting to say no in phase three. You've done all that experiment. You've started to gain traction. You've made those decisions, made those choices. And now you're taking those two or three or four or five things that really work and really are the things that you want to do for your legacy and scale them up, right? Scale them up in impact, scale them up in your team, right? So now you've focused, got it, brought all of those opportunities down to just a few, focused on the things that work best, and then scale those things up. That's the idea. Yeah. Investing back in the business, you know, saying no allows you to buy some of your time back. And, you know, I should have probably done that sooner, honestly, but, you know, financially, I feel comfortable to do that. And also I would say there's kind of a period of questioning too. And maybe this is cyclical as well. You know, you get 10 years into doing anything and you start to say, okay, well, what's next? Like, what else could this be? <laughs> right. Where do I take this? And I may have done that at the other phases, but it doesn't feel quite as acute as it does 
right now, just the questioning of it. And I, I love that, you know, I've created a safe space for questioning the business and what it could be. And I don't actually know what that's going to be, but I do find myself questioning that. I remember listening to your podcast, 12, the 12, 12, 12 challenge, I think it was. Yep. And I remember right where I was when I was listening to it and I was commuting back and forth to this job that I left before I started 30 by 40. And you've been doing this for, you know, 11 years now, right? So like, yep. do you feel the same? Are you always questioning? <laughs> oh, every day, okay. every day, <laughs> every day, because it's hard, right? And we've had to make sacrifices to get to where we are, right? And there's a long way to go to get to where I want to be, right? And the things that I want to do in my life in terms of impact and legacy, I literally have just begun, right? From where I started in 2012 to where I am today, in my mind, that was just the foundation of the building. I love it. Right? The rest of it is coming, right? And so it took a long time, 10 years to build what we've built. But in order to now use that as a foundation for the impact that we could have into the future and beyond us, because that's how I look at Entree Architect, I'm building this for the future. So when I'm gone, this still is here, still making an impact in a very big way. And so in order to do that, you have to build a strong, solid foundation. And so, yeah, every day I question, you know, the decisions I've made but I'm really happy of where I could potentially take this in the future. I love that metaphor, Mark, too. I was just talking to my friend, the friend that I do this other podcast with. I was just talking to him about that. I was just saying, oh, you know, I've been, I'm working with this team now and it is a lot of investment. And he said, how's it going? I said, well, it is kind of like pouring a foundation. You do all the, the foundation work and then you come and you kind of cover it up with all the dirt, right? And you don't end up right, seeing any right. of the foundation work. And, and I should have done some of this foundation work many years ago. And I'm choosing to do it now because I feel more free to do that. But it is like that. And I feel so good about having a foundation that is poured correctly and reinforced and has waterproofing. And, you know, mm -hmm. maybe that's how you feel, but I, I love that metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly how I feel. And you mentioned the other, your friend, Jason, and the podcast that you do, Two Sides of Phi, and it's also on YouTube. That's a whole other side of what you're doing. But from the way I look at it, because I listen to both, consume all your content. So I, I understand where that's coming from and how it integrates with your architecture firm. But I want to bring that into this conversation because somewhere along the line, you discovered the Phi movement, you know, financially independent, retire early. And that clearly is part of your focus and scale decisions and into the future. Where did that come into your story in terms of phasing and how impactful is that as you move into the future? Yeah, that was right around this kind of third phase, Mark. My friend Jason was, you know, he retired in 2020, right? As the pandemic was kind of kicking into high gear, he retired in, I think, June of 2020. And it's interesting because maybe people can relate to this. You know, you, you you don't pay attention as much to finances as you should until you have, until you feel safe and comfortable. You know, if it's always a stress to go in and look at your bank account and what it, yeah. you think it should be or could be, you maybe tend to ignore it. And I think I spent the messy middle, as I refer to it, you know, like my 30s, taking the kids on vacations to national parks. And we were spending and enjoying the time. You know, you have a very finite time you have with your kids in the house. And I feel great about all those investments, but it meant I neglected investing and saving for retirement. And when my friend told me that he was retiring early, I couldn't believe it. You know, he was 47 at the time. And I was just shocked that that was even possible. And so he presented this narrative to me that I fell in love with. You know, the idea that, it was, it's very similar to the business that I built, you know, just buying back my own freedom, you know, buying back time freedom. It's the most important thing. So, you know, as he and I were talking, I just said, it'd be a shame to keep these conversations that you and I are having about finances, which I don't know if you had done this with your friends, but I never really talked openly about finances with my friends or even my no. family because it's just a private matter. And yeah. he and I were sharing things, which, you know, I had never done before. And I thought, well, this is really interesting to me and I'm learning so much. I hate to kind of keep this information to myself. And so we decided, you know, we would adopt the same self-publishing model that I did for 30 by 40. And that is, we're just going to, as we're learning things, we're just going to put it out there. And, and I was kind of treating 
him as the the sort of master teacher and I was mm-hmm. the apprentice and right. I was asking questions from the sort of audience's standpoint as I learned about it. And I was able to thankfully, because of where the business was at in phase three, you know, start investing properly and make changes to my personal finances that would allow my wife and I to potentially retire early, reach financial independence. The retire early, we always say, is kind of an optional part of the FIRE movement, F-I-R-E. But I'm very interested in, and I know you are too, Mark, ways to build financial independence in my own life. And then sharing that out with other people because it just has such a huge impact. You know, making some small changes. If I had made some of these small changes that I know about today when I was in my 20s, I would have had much different choices in my 40s, even my 30s. You know, every dollar that you save when you're a 20-year-old turns into 88 by the time you're 65. And that's an incredible long lever that you can use. And so the podcast is another dimension to the kind of studio here. You know, the backdrop for the podcast, if you watch it or listen to it, is the studio, my half of it at least. And it's been a great experiment. And it's something that's carrying me forward in a different direction. Again, something I couldn't have predicted. I've met all kinds of people, both near and far, because of doing this podcast. And the same is true for the YouTube channel. It's just, you can't predict those connections and where it will lead you. So it's, I love that about it. Yeah, it's a great podcast. I recommended it to both my sons who have recently left the house and are out in the world and <laughs> and are in their early 20s and, and said, go listen to this episode because awesome. you have an opportunity here, right? I'm 53, you, you're not, you're 24, you know, yes. go out and go watch this and go make some investments. And they are. It's such a great series that you're sharing again, right? You're making an, a huge impact on that, you know, inside and outside the architecture world, because you're also introducing that idea of financial independence to architects because they're following you there too, because they are so interested in your journey through 30 by 40. It's funny that it's also an experiment in starting a channel over because I've had so many people say, oh, well, you know, easy for you to say, you know, go make videos on YouTube because you've got a big audience now. I'm like, well, I just started one from scratch. Right. We're only at 20,000 subscribers, but go put 20,000 people in a room. Exactly <laughs> right. Know, that's a lot of people. Yeah. And it's been really liberating to see what's working today and what's different today the back when I started. And it's a completely different audience, although there is some architect overlap there, but there's nothing more empowering than being able to create something from scratch and see. I love looking back on the history of it, even just as a documentation of, you know, my friendship with my friend Jason and and how that's evolved too. It's been great. And he's a childhood friend, right? You grew up together. Yeah. Yeah. He and I met in the eighth grade and, you know, we were shooting rockets off in the backyard together and split ways for a while. When we were in college, I was the best man in his wedding, he was the best man in my wedding. So yeah, lifelong friends. And this has been a another great dimension for us to connect on. You know, we've just went out to California to celebrate our 50th birthdays together. And so he lives, you know, he lives on an opposite coast. So we're pretty far away, but we're more close than we've ever been. And, yeah. you know, to unite people over something like finances, which is not often talked about, which is often kept in the back room, it feels great to open the door and tell people, you know, give people solid advice and to not be afraid of it. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of friends here who I've opened a discussion with and and they're afraid to talk about it because they don't have anything saved. And yeah, you're going to retire at some point. So you got to have a plan for it. And I know architects want to work until their, their last dying day, but you still need a plan for being financially solvent. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting that you sacrificed the plan starting, but now you have a plan going forward. <laughs> for sure. And it's a very important piece of what you're doing today. <laughs> for sure. And so it's interesting because as you're talking about your finances, that too is focus and scale, right? So you've made some decisions, focusing on a few certain things, taking the money that you've already saved or invested. And now your goal is to to scale that to the point where you can retire early or at least be financially independent to have the choice to retire early. I don't imagine you'll ever retire. You'll You'll shift your lifestyle, but I doubt you'll retire. Yeah, that's the plan. That's the plan is to keep following the things that I'm interested in. You know, it's it's one of the reasons why I designed the studio to be what it is. It's kind of this multidisciplinary space that I can podcast and I can build models and I can sketch and make films. And, you know, my kids can hang out here and play music. It's great. I'm not sure I would have made it 10 years into business, Mark, if I didn't have the range of tools and things at my fingertips, because I'm someone who kind of gets bored 
easily, yeah. you know, and I want to be able to swing between these different spaces. And I think if people come away from this, less about thinking about building a legacy via a YouTube channel, which I know is not for everybody, mm-hmm. but more about being intentional in their choice and knowing that we only get one shot at this. So you might as well design whatever you're making to serve you and your passions and your interests in the best way possible, because it's just such an enjoyable life. If you can do that, you know, rather than the misery of whatever you don't want to be doing, design the thing that you do want to be doing. I mean, that's what you did with your career, right? Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story today because, you know, a lot of people know you, a lot of people have been following you along the way. A lot of people look at what you've built and sort of are a little envious or a little jealous. Look at what he's built. He's got this great studio and he's designing this great architecture and he's got this great YouTube channel with a million subscribers. But it's having just heard the story, now you understand that it didn't just happen overnight. It took a decade to build what you've built and a lot of sacrifice and hard work. And so thank you for sharing the details and the background on what you've built here. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and I, I don't want anyone to come away with the idea that I had this grand vision architected out from the beginning. It's a series of incremental moves that I made over time and it's possible for anyone. I hope that that is the overarching message that yeah. I'm nobody special. I'm just, I'm a guy on an island in the middle of nowhere <laughs> off the coast of Maine. And if I can do this, anybody can. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Let's, I want to understand your answer to our final question. I asked this question to hundreds of architects and you have your perfect opportunity to ask this after the story that we've just heard. Now we have to choose one thing, <laughs> one thing that an architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow. If an architect's going to focus on one thing, what is the one thing that they should focus on to focus on to build something better for tomorrow? The mantra that I end all of my videos with is go make things. And that, yeah. you know, if I think about the thread of, there's multiple threads that have gone through in my business, but making things has been at the heart of it. And, you know, it, they don't have to be these precious videos that you see on my YouTube channel now. They can be a piece of graphic design. They can be stickers, t-shirts, whatever you choose. But I think the process of making makes you a better craftsperson and makes you more in tune with your own skills, communication, or otherwise. And I think, you know, if I had to attribute the success of the business and where it is today, it's that disciplined act of making things every day. I baked it into the metrics of success for my business. You know, if I'm not making something in every day, that I'm happy and proud with, then it hasn't been a successful day. And so, you know, making can look like a lot of different things. And yeah, that would be my advice. His name is Eric Reinholdt. The firm is 30 by 40 Design Workshop. You can check him out on the web. Everything that he's doing, the books, the coaching, the products, the all the things, and the YouTube channels, they're all there linked on 30by40.com, all spelled out 30by40.com. The YouTube channel is 30 by 40 with numbers, 30, but spelled out BY40. You could just search 30 by 40, you'll find them. And Two Sides of Fi, Two Sides of Fi, F-I, is the YouTube channel for the Financial Independence Podcast. Eric, thank you. This is this has been a very enjoyable conversation. I love catching up with you, learning what you're doing. We always resonate when we talk, and so it's fun to talk to you inspiring and motivational, but I really appreciate the dedication that you have to the profession, right? That you're sharing what you do. You're transparent with what you do. You've impacted so many people with the work that you've done. And so I appreciate you for that. And thank you for building what you've built. And I appreciate you coming by here and sharing your story at Entree Architect Podcast. I loved every minute of it, Mark. Thanks to you for all the work that you've done and for being willing to put other people's stories out there. You know, there's plenty of people who are doing really interesting things. And I'm so glad that you've built the platform you have to be able to share those stories with a bigger audience. You know, I feel a lot of camaraderie with your mission and I appreciate you. Great talking to you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the next 10 years. (laughs) Oh man, let's not rush that. (laughs) If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a five-star rating Write a quick review and share a link to this episode with a friend because that is how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. 
by sharing a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I appreciate you for that. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode, RCAT and Entree Architect Network. Links to sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode and every episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Select episodes of Entree Architect Podcast are approved for AIA continuing education credit. Learn more about our new Gable Members program at gablemedia.com slash members. That's G-A-B-L media.com slash members. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. Are you NCARB certified yet? Join the network of over 45,000 architects who have the NCARB certificate to expand your professional reach. By becoming NCARB certified, you are demonstrating that you've met the national standards for licensure, a qualification that can be an important factor for firms when hiring and promoting. Certificate holders have a streamlined path to apply for a reciprocal license in all 55 U.S. jurisdictions, as well as access to an extensive library of free continuing education courses. Learn more today at ncarb.org. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.